team. Good morning, High Point. Today's scripture reading can be found on page 175 of the Pew Bible. We'll be reading from Leviticus chapter 23, verses 26 through 32, and then from chapter 25. The Lord said to Moses, the tenth day of this seventh month is the day of atonement. Hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. Do not do any work on that day because it is the day of atonement, when atonement is made for you before the Lord. Those who do not deny themselves on that day must be cut off from their people. I will destroy from among their people anyone who does any work on that day. You shall do no work at all. This is to be a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, wherever you live. It is a day of Sabbath rest for you, and you must deny yourselves. From the evening of the ninth day of the month until the following evening, you are to observe your Sabbath. Then from chapter 25, we'll be reading verses 8 through 24. Count off seven Sabbath years, seven times seven years, so that the seventh, seven Sabbath years amount to a period of 49 years. Then have the trumpet sounded everywhere on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, the sound of the trumpet throughout your land. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. The 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. Do not sow and do not reap what grows of itself or harvest the untended vines. For it is a jubilee and it is to be holy for you. Eat only what is taken directly from the fields. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. If you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the jubilee and they are to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price, because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God. I am the Lord your God. Follow my decrees and be careful to obey my laws, and you will live safely in the land. Then the land will yield its fruit, and you will eat. <clears throat> you will eat your fill and live there in safety. You may ask, what will we eat in the seventh year if we do not plant or harvest our crops? I will send you such a blessing in the sixth year that the land will yield enough for three years. While you plant during the eighth year, you will eat from the old crop and will continue to eat from it until the harvest of the ninth year comes in. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. This is the word of the Lord written for his people. Thanks, Femi. <clears throat> okay. Hey, everyone. So if you're newer to... Um, Femi, I'm going to left my clicker in my vest in the back there, if you could grab it. Um, so if you're newer to High Point, um, last year we spent the whole year 
looking at um, what it looks like to be a substantive Christian, like a somebody who grows in godliness, not in self-righteousness, but in real godliness. And um, it says in 2 Peter 1, 3 and following, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. Thanks. Through the power of him who called us by his own glory and goodness, through these he's given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we might participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption that is in the world caused by evil desires. Right? That sounds really good. And that's all grace. That's all given. That's all gift. And the, the next verse is not, therefore let go and let God. That's not the next verse. That's actually not in the Bible anywhere. Right? Because what it, what it says is, is that um, his divine power has given us everything we need. Okay. Now, there are places in the Bible where God says, you need to do nothing and I'm going to do everything. For example, in the Day of Atonement, right? You, we, we do nothing to be atoned for. God does everything, right? But that's not really true for all of our life and everything God calls us up and into, right? So what it means that we have everything we need is, is that we will find if through faith, right, we trust in, that God has given us everything we need, we will find that the strength that we have is sufficient for the task in front of us always in order to engage in life with godliness. That's what First Peter says. Now, you may not know where all that strength comes from. You, you, don't, you won't necessarily know where your natural strength as a, as a creature ends and where Christ begins or like— or the strength that's in you from God, you won't even really always know exactly where that strength comes from. Some of it might come from just the person of the Holy Spirit. Some of it might come from something that comes from believing his promise, something that emotionally lifts you, and that emotion has strength that then you take advantage of, right? The joy of the Lord is your strength, for example, right? And you, you won't always know if the sufficient strength you have in a particular moment is because the Holy Spirit is literally giving you strength, because it's your strength, or because it's strength that you have because of the joy that you have, the Bible doesn't sort all that out for you because it's probably unsortoutable. Because it's all mixed all the time. But the Bible's promise is this, though, at least. If you avail yourself of the one who has given you everything you need, you will always find you have enough for whatever you have to do. Always. Right? But what it, what it, the very next verse, though, is, Therefore, make every effort. This is 2 Peter 1, verse 5. To add to your faith goodness into goodness, knowledge into knowledge, self-control into self-control, perseverance into perseverance, godliness into godliness, brotherly love or brotherly kindness into brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus. You can go on, sure, that's great. Right? And so, to live into what we're meant to live into, we've received everything we need, and in receiving everything we need, we make every effort, which means we're going to have to be strong, right? That's what we call, we call it. Virtue is essentially the moral strength of character to do what is morally beautiful, that which is love, Right? And so we have everything that we need, but we have to make every effort, but we'll find we have enough strength. The question is, where does that strength come from? And we read last week in the book of Nehemiah this, which is like our, our next memory verse, because we, we did a lot of memorizing in the last year, that bigger passage. And so this year we've had kind of like wussy memory verses, but we're still really important memory verses, right? So First um, Thessalonians 5.16 is, 
be joyful always. Great. And then Romans 12, 12a is be joyful in hope. Great. And then in uh, Nehemiah 8, 10, he says, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Right? So, so God gives us all the strength that we need, but, but some of that strength is probably infused by the immediate presence of the Holy Spirit. But a lot of the strength, it says, is he, he's, right, he says, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness. But then it says this, through our knowledge. Now, how do you give, right? That's a major issue, right? How do you give power through knowledge, right? But you see, emotions often come from deeply held beliefs, right? So if we believe something amazing, which we know, right? That might produce an emotion. If that emotion is joy, joy produces strength, right? And so if you have the kind of if you know what the Lord has done, you know, something, there's something about the Lord, something great about the Lord, that if you know it, it is this thing called the joy of the Lord. And that thing makes you strong, right? And so if you're going to be strong enough to make every effort to really grow in godliness, to be effective and productive, and to, to live both the life and in the godliness that God made you for, you have to access this. So the question is, how do you do it? Like, how do you, how do you have sufficient joy in the Lord so that you're strong? So that you do find that you have sufficient strength for whatever's in front of you, right? So we've been looking at um, these festivals because in the book of Colossians, it says that all of the things in the Old Testament are essentially shadows of, of what would come about in Christ, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all those things. And those are like a shadow of him, but the thing about them is, is that they're still kind of like a silhouette. And they're helpful because we are so religious, whether we're believers or not. And once we think we've heard something— sorry, this like OD energy bar before. Um, it's, we're so like religious that we'll hear stuff about Jesus. Like you'll read this, and it won't do anything for you because you feel like you've heard it all before. You're like, oh yeah, Jesus, all the fullness is in Jesus. But the, but the problem is, is that the joy of the Lord is your strength only if you can feel it, right? I mean, like this is a— like, it's a feeling. Like, there's an emotional strength that comes. So it's like it's got to do something for you, right? And so sometimes God will lead us to another place and then take us back to Jesus for the thing that we were looking past, right? Because you can believe the truth, but if you believe the truth in the way that it doesn't do anything for you, it doesn't do anything in you. And then you don't have any strength. And then you're angry because you don't have enough strength to do what you have to do. And you think it's God's problem, but it isn't. Right? So how do we do it? Um, in the festivals of the Old Testament, I said last week that, you know, it's like 82 to 1 festival days to like fasting days, right? Feasts to fasts. And that's probably an, an exaggeration. I haven't done all the math of exactly how many Sabbath days overlap with festival days, okay? So it's probably like 79 or something or 76, but it's a lot, okay? And yet the festivals are not all the same. And it's because you and I aren't one-dimensional things, okay? So one of the things that we are is a creature. We talked about this last week, that God loves joy. He wants to give a good joy to creatures— through rhythms, because creatures are rhythm things, right? 
It's just what we are. We need to rest, and we need to go through these different kind of rhythms of life. And so some of the festivals are, are based on cycles. Cycles of the seasons, cycles of aging, cycles of rest, cycles of the week's work, all that kind of stuff. And we need those because we're creatures, but we're not only creatures, right? We're also creatures who are spirits, like we have a soul, a spirit. We're made to be everlasting, right? We're made in God's image, and so we're made to, to actually, whenever we're born, sort of in the destiny of history, we're meant to be caught up into an eternal story that we may not know, and that when we hear, we don't remember very well, because we think of ourselves as in this moment of time and not as existing within this huge expanse of the beauty of history and of God's redemption. And so there have to be certain festivals that are of remembrance, right? They're like— they're memory festivals. They're, they're meant to draw us up into who and what we are. They're, they're so that we know our identity and we don't constantly forget it, right? And so we're creatures who are also spirits. But the, the other problem with us is that we are, we are creatures and spirits with problems, okay? Like, we got, we've got problems, you and I. And we, like big problems and persistent problems and relatively unfixable problems. Problems that kind of go on and on, right? And so if you, if you think about joy, and if we're going to receive joy, but we're creatures with problems, problems that create problems that don't fix themselves and that we can't fix, because guess what kind of creature is trying to fix the problems that we made if we're trying to fix our problems? The kind of creature that got into those problems in the first place, okay? We're not very good at fixing our problems. And so what we need, actually, is somebody to come along and to find a way to reset everything. Because creatures with problems need resets. If you don't have resets, you're not going to make it. Because you're going to screw up, and you're going to get behind, and you're not going to be able to make your payments morally, financially, health-wise. It's just you're not going to be able to do it. And if somebody doesn't reset the system, you're in big trouble, right? One of the interns said it this way. Hit reset, play joy. Silly, but cute. Okay. <laughs> So one of the things that we need in our festivals, in order for us to be happy, in order for us to have any kind of joy in our lives, and if God wants to give us joy, if that's his desire for us, then one of the things he's going to have to create for us are resets. And so when you study the festivals, what you find is that there's a bunch of these. There's a bunch of resets, and they deal with mainly two human problems. One is the human problem of debt, and the second is the human problem of loops. That You can think of it this way, that like debts are basically stuff we can't pay for. Now, that's money, of course, right? But it's lots of other stuff, too. Like, debt is like, re like relational moral debt. Like, you betrayed somebody, and how do you make that better? You can't make that better. That's the answer, right? You can't fix your relationship with your parents. You think that kid's never going to love you again, right? Like, you're sideways with your boss or your coworkers, your friends. Or like, there's all kinds of—there's all kinds of holes we get into that we don't have the resources to get out of, right? And the second is— um, loops we can't break. So like, n so one of our biggest problems is negative positive feedback loops, right? And you're like, why is it negative? Okay, because a positive—here's what a positive feedback loop is. A positive feedback loop is something happens, and then something responds to it that makes it happen more, okay? And that's true whether the thing's good or bad, right? So like, if you— if, if a kid does something good, and you're like, hey, man, that was awesome, right? And you tell them it was great, and they're like, oh, that's great. That's so great. I'm so glad, right? And then they do, they're like, maybe I'll do it again, because I feel good about that, right? And they do it again, and you're like, that was so good. And they're like, oh, that's good. And so they do it again, and like, you keep telling them it's good, and they keep doing it, right? 
It's good. And so you get more of it, right? And it's a positive feedback loop. Because every time they do it, you give them this feedback. The feedback is positive. They do it more. You get a positive feedback loop. It's great, right? You're not in good shape. You exercise. You feel terrible, but you feel good that you exercised, right? And the next day you exercise again, maybe, and you still feel kind of terrible, but not quite as terrible. And you feel better because you did it two days in a row. And that's kind of good, right? And then like, you see this is going, and pretty soon, like, if you don't feel as terrible doing it, you feel a lot better for having it. You actually feel better, and you get this positive feedback loop, right? It's great. Of course, the same thing is true of negative things, right? You tell a kid they're stupid. They do something, you're like, you're such a stupid person. And then they're like, I, well, I hate your guts, right? And they're like, and then they do more stupid stuff. And you keep telling them they're stupid, they do more stupid stuff, and they act really stupid. Right? And there's, that functions in lots of ways. For example, the, like, uh, there's a lot of middle-aged women— a lot. There's a certain percentage, it's disturbingly high, of middle-aged women who, who become agoraphobic, like they can't go out of their houses. Usually what happens is, is that they have to fight with their friend or something happens, and like they get, they like, it really like does something to them emotionally, and they're feeling really anxious, right? And they drive to the mall, and the mall is, can be a stressful place, because like you're trying to find a place to park, and then people are mean to you, and then blah, 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 right? And so they get there, and they kind of feel themselves getting anxious, and then they get a little more anxious because they're trying to park, and then they go inside, and something, something else might happen, and then they feel themselves getting anxious. So like, then they start getting anxious that they're getting anxious, and then like before they know it, they think they're having a heart attack, and they go to the emergency room, and they tell, tell her that she's fine, but she doesn't feel fine, right? And then the next time she goes, to the mall, she starts feeling anxious because she felt really anxious at the mall. She couldn't explain why. And so then she runs away, and then her brain tells her that there's something dangerous at the mall, like a bear or something, and she should never go there again because it turns out that your mind thinks stuff you run away from is dangerous. And so you'll be anxious about it. And then somehow she kind of associates that with the quick trip. And so she's going to the quick trip. She starts feeling anxious again. So she retreats. She goes back to her home because she's afraid of the quick trip, right? Because she's afraid of the other thing. She's feeling anxious. And before she knows it, she can't go anywhere without feeling deathly anxious. It's a positive feedback loop that's negative. It's a negative positive feedback loop. It ain't good. And our lives are full of them, right? Our stress eating and the way we fight with our spouse or our friends. Like, she always yells at me like this, and then I always ignore her like that, and then we do round and round it goes, right? There's all—and we don't really know how to stop them. You're like, why don't you—like, I keep telling people, like, I constantly, like, why don't you just apologize? Why don't you say, sweetie, I've been an idiot. Just say—just, like, make that come out of your mouth. And they're like, I just don't know how you're—I'm like— You've been using English words for 35 minutes of this counseling appointment. Like, what do you mean you don't know how? Right? But that's how they feel. Because they're just in this feedback loop, and they just feel like they can't get out of it, and they just feel like they can't do anything. You feel really powerless, right? And sometimes it's because you are really powerless. Right? And here's—and and this is what we're like. We're creatures with problems. And so if, if joy doesn't have some kind of reset, if there's no way to restart it, you got—we got—, we got we're, we're just stuck in our problems, right? Like, you know this is true with computers, but computers are a lot like our lives in this sense, right? Computers are a bunch of different cycles running next to each other so that we can do things. And then one of those cycles gets sideways with another cycle. And at first it's like a little glitch, and then it like, but you don't really want us to restart your computer because it takes two minutes, you know? And so you like, you keep working on it. What's the first thing the computer technician says if you, if you call him over, Right? What is the main thing computer technicians make fun of in normal other people who use computers when they're alone with each other, right? Yeah, I went to blah, blah, blah on the fourth floor. You know what? He hadn't even restarted his computer yet. I just restarted his computer. Everything worked. Can you believe that? Ha, ha, ha. It's your field, idiot. Of course, they don't know how to, right? But like, you should learn that. If you have a computer, if things aren't working well, just restart it. Because about 95% of the time, it'll work great, right? Because— Things just need to reset. 
Every night, every, every night you go to bed, right? You're not just accumulating energy. Your body's resetting all kinds of stuff. Because the day was hard. It was kind of chaotic. You didn't like most of the stuff that happened. And it stressed you out. And your body's like, okay, that's why you're having wacky dreams, right? Why am I thinking that? Because your mind is resetting, right? You're thinking about how you might handle it or that kind of stuff, right? So what God does in the festivals and what he does, therefore, in Christ— Christ is in himself a festival of resets. He is himself structured and made and formed, and he has formed the salvation that he's offered us specifically to meet us in all of the ways we need festivals, in all of the things we need for joy. He meets us in all of our cycles. He meet, he'll meet us, we'll talk about this next week, in what memory we need to know who we are, in what we'll live. But he also realizes that we need resets. Lots of different kinds of resets. But in the, in the festivals, we see at least three major ones. Moral restitution. That is a relational reset that can create forgiveness. Failure redemption. If you just screw up, it's just a big failure. Like, he wants to reset you. You're not a—you don't—there's no reason you have to be a big failure. He wants to give you another chance. Like it says um, in the book of Joel, he wants to give you back the years that the locusts ate. Like, he—like— and the, the lo, you were like, locusts? What the, well, the locusts were a judgment of God. The reason the locusts ate everything in that time of the Israelite life is because they were failures. And so God judged them. He's like, but I can still—all that time where you did the wrong thing, and I even judged you, and you were—you suffered a lot. I can give you back things from those years. And the way the New Testament says God does that in 2 Corinthians is he takes all that suffering— and he reworks it into your character so it becomes some of the building blocks of strengths that you take forward and that you bless everyone with. Right? And then security restoration, where there's a, a space reset, a place for safety and security. We'll talk about that at the end. Right? So the, the, first, the first reset is the reset of atonement. Right? And this is built on the idea that when we do something that is morally blameworthy, there is no fixing that. There's no, there's no fixing it in terms of just the general morality of the universe, and there's no fixing it relationally without restitution. Because when you do something to somebody else, you take something from them, and usually you take something from them you can't ever give back. So what are you going to do? Right? I remember when I was a little boy, I was going to um, Catholic school after my normal school, and we were—somebody so, had asked, like, how do you think you go to heaven? And I was like, well— the way I imagine it, because I was a precocious young child, is that there's like a scale, right? I'm the first person in the human race who ever thought, thought that up, right? And like all the good stuff you do kind of goes on one side, and the bad stuff you do kind of goes on the other side. And if like the good side weighs more than the bad side, I think you go to heaven, right? And my Roman Catholic, like 174-year-old lady teacher said, no, Nick, that's not right. Jesus died for your sins. And like, that was like her telling me that like elephants, you know, like to orbit the earth in their spare time because they like how it makes them feel light. Like it, di like it didn't make hardly any sense to me because I was so trapped in a moral, like a moralistic framework. But, but I mean, think about it this way for a second though. Like imagine, imagine that you had a, like a friend, right? So you're talking to your friend and your friend's like, okay, I, th I think I, like, need to take a break from this friendship because, like, this guy 
like, has betrayed me, like, significantly betrayed me, like, three times in two weeks, right? Right? Like, if you're sitting with your friend, what do you say? What do you say that? Like, yeah, yeah, my friend Jimmy, like, betrayed me three times in two weeks, right? You, you would not—this is what you would not say. Well, did he do anything loyal in those two weeks? Was he loyal three times in those two weeks? That's not what you would say, right? Like, how often are you supposed to do the right thing? All the time. A hundred percent of the time. You don't even get extra credit for that. You're supposed to do the right thing. How often are you supposed to commit a moral crime? Never. Never. Okay? Nobody goes like, yeah, like, like I know you stole that car, but like at least you finished 10th grade, so we'll just wipe that out. Like you can steal a couple more actually. You've got a balance and the good— Like that's not how it works. If you had a friend who's loyal to you for 20 years, but he betrays you three times in two weeks, you're going to be like, I don't know about this. It doesn't balance out. Because crimes are crimes. They take from others. They take things you can't restore. Right? And so God introduces this idea he calls atonement, which is that the person who's been stolen from the most is God by you. Right? And that that's a problem because you can't restore anything you've taken from God. Nothing. There's no way you pay back God. And so what he does is he creates a substitute, and that substitute is pictured in a lamb. And then the lamb has to be offered, and so you have to put your hands on its head, saying, you're about to die, lamb, and this is my fault. Because my sins are going on you, and you're going to die for them, right? And then they kill the little thing, right? Now, Now listen, you know what the sacrifice was for most normal people? It was a year old lamb or goat without defect, okay? Now, listen, I grew up on a farm, okay? I grew up on a farm. I know this. And people in the Old Testament did not keep rabbits, okay? Can we agree? People in the Old Testament did not keep rabbits? Okay, great. Therefore, you're killing the cutest animal on the farm. Right? Have you ever seen a year-old lamb without defect? They're the cutest little things. Right? And like, you gotta watch its throat get slit right in front of you. Now, can a lamb, can a dying lamb pay back God for the eternal cosmic treason that you have committed repeatedly? Right? The answer is no. But by, what he promised them was by putting their faith in that, he would provide a sacrifice. Right? These are shadow of the things to come, the fullness of which are in Christ. The divine God-man can die for your sins. Because he is able, he is innocent, and he is willing, and he is bigger than your treason. Right? And so here's the thing. That's not just you and God, though, because here's what what happens when you really grapple with what you've tried to steal from God, and all of that, and you really grapple with it, and then you really believe that God has made a reset for you through atonement so that he has put away everything that you've done through the sacrifice. And that's exactly what they do in the Day of Atonement, right? He says that you take two lambs, right? This is in Leviticus 16, if you want to read it later, if you've never read it. You take two lambs, and you roll up a dice to see which one gets picked to die. And then the one, he gets killed as an atonement sacrifice, and then the other one, you put your hands on him, and then he gets taken out into the desert. So one lamb is atonement. The other lamb, the theological word, is expiation, the taking away of sin and guilt. Same thing was true in the daily sacrifices. There was a daily sin sacrifice, and then there was another sacrifice called the guilt sacrifice. If you read the first five chapters of Leviticus, you'll see this, right? 
There was the sin sacrifice, and then there was the guilt sacrifice. Why were there two sacrifices? Right? Because you can do an atonement sacrifice and still not feel free. You could actually do the like, I paid the penalty, and you can still feel terrible. You can still feel bound by your guilt. You can still feel like you ought to die. You can still feel like everything's still wrong with the world. You can still feel completely unforgiven. Right? So there's like a whole nother sacrifice for that. It's like, okay, we took care of your sin. That's atoned for. We're going to do a whole nother sacrifice just for your freaking emotions. Because that's how hard it is to reset human emotions. It's death hard to reset human emotions. But that's what God does. That's what he does in atonement. And here's, here's why that's even better. Is that the minute that sets you right with God, right— and you leave the presence of God, and you're walking home, and you run into that friend who used to be your friend that betrayed you three times in the last two weeks, right? What are you going to do with him? You see, one of the things that we don't realize is one of the reasons why there is no law under grace is because grace is its own law. Grace has its own law, and the law of grace is this. If you receive grace, you have to give it. That's why Jesus can say you can be saved entirely by grace, but if you won't forgive people, he won't forgive you. He will rescind his forgiveness of you if you don't forgive others. It's one of the most terrible promises in the Bible. But it's the law of grace. The law of grace is that if you have been forgiven of much, you cannot not forgive other people, which means what? That the divine reset of atonement spreads. The vertical divine reset of atonement spreads horizontally. Because I walk out of the presence of God being atoned for, and I run into somebody who's taken something from me. But in comparison, he's taken so much less from me. And God offered me unilateral reset. And so I'm, I'm the one who he's taken from. He owes me the debt, and therefore I offer forgiveness to him because that's what God did for me. Right? There's a parable about this. Remember the parable of the unmerciful servant who owes, like, who owes his master like, couple hundred million dollars. It's actually like in the billions. It's a very large sum of money. And the master—I don't know how a servant racked up that kind of debt, but it's the story, okay? And so Jesus is like—so he comes in front of the master, and the guy like—he's like, I can't pay this. And the master's like, okay, I'm going to wipe out the debt. And the guy's like, that's fantastic. And then he goes out into the street, and he bumps into a guy that owes him like a, a decently considerable sum of money, like $50,000, right? And he starts choking the guy, right? And so what happens? The servants tell the master, and then what does the master do? The master's like, hey, listen. He sits the guy down. He's like, look, I forgave you for like a lot, and I've totally forgiven you, right? I'm like, don't you think you should forgive the other guy? And he's like, I don't want to forgive the other guy. I want to choke the other guy. He owes me $50,000. He'd be like, well, I guess if that's what you're going to do, I guess it's okay. That's not what it says. It's not what it says. What it says is, is that the master hauls the guy back in, reinstates the entirety of the debt, and throws him into prison and sells his whole family. How's that going with your nice Jesus? Why would he be, why would he be so like that, right? Because grace has its own law. When God gives everything, he atones, he resets everything for you. Then you take that reset and you reset it with the rest of humanity. And reset spreads relationally throughout humanity. Forgiveness spreads. It's one of the reasons why for a couple thousand years, Christians in many churches have allowed people to go through the congregation and, and ask for forgiveness and offer forgiveness before communion. The remembrance of the atonement of Christ. 
and his forgiveness of us. Right? Because Jesus won't forgive you if you won't forgive others. And that's just a, a fact of grace. It's grace is law. But it's also like, it's a great time to do it. It's a great time to be like, wait, this is the moment where Jesus forgives me. Who have I not forgiven? Is there anybody in the world I haven't forgiven? And then you forgive them. And then you tell them you forgave them. And that you want to reset with them. Because God knows that for our joy to exist, we have to have moral resets all the time. And that's why— that's why so great an emphasis that in Christ he has morally reset us, if we'll trust him, right? I gotta keep moving because I'm not, I'm not doing my time very well. The second is Sabbath. Now you might be like, okay, so, Nick, isn't Sabbath cycles? Isn't that cycles and rest? Yes, it is, but it's also reset. Like everybody's tense in the office on Friday. They go home for the weekend. They come back. Things are already a little better, right? Because they got a reset, right? They went ice fishing. They drank some lightning cools and they're feeling a little bit better, right? Or they went to church and they remembered that they loved Jesus, right? Or both. Okay, so the point is, is that it's the, there's these resets. Now, there, it's more than that, though, because in the Bible, it's not just the weekly Sabbath and reset. There's more than that. There's a seven-year reset. That's where we get the idea of a Sabbath from. Or, like, I'm sorry, a sabbatical year, right? I don't know why plumbers don't get sabbaticals and academics do, but it's the idea, right? And the idea was this, is that in the, in the ancient world, they recognized that to wipe out debts was stealing. Because if you had a debt, and the debt was just, that debt was owed to somebody, and that was their property. And so like, if, if I owed you $40,000, and I was like, well, I'm bankrupt, like, that's unjust. That's stealing $40,000, right? And the Bible says you can't favor the poor in that way. But then the Bible also says you can't be harsh like the Egyptians were, and squeeze the blood out of stones. Like, you can't you can't be like that either. And so what happens with debt is that it begins to compound, and then it has interest rates, and the interest rates increase. And there's a way of working debt to destroy the people that have debt. So the, how do you, what do you do with that, right? There's no bankruptcy. There's no Social Security. There's none of these things. And so the way they would work it is this. If you were an Israelite, and you were in debt, and you sold everything, and you were still massively in debt, you could become an indentured servant or slave for up to six years. And I say up to six years because you could buy your freedom if at any point you prospered, right? And anybody could redeem you at any time on the basis of how many years of work was left and them buying that out. And people were commanded to if they could. Like if it was your brother that got, had to sell himself into slavery and you had the money, you were supposed to buy him out of it, right? But if none of that stuff worked, after six years, no matter how much debt you owed, you were clean. You were even. And you walked away totally at zero. Right? Now, okay, so what do we do with that? Like, how is that, how is that a shadow of what was to come in Christ? Well, in one sense, um, that was the ultimate failure, right? Like, you would sell everything before you'd sell yourself. So if you had to sell yourself into slavery, or you were sold in slavery because of your debt, like, that, you failed, man. Like, you failed. And this wasn't a high percentage of the population. Most people were hired workers or they owned some land. This was a fairly small number of people. And yet, no matter how much you failed, you, it was not a permanent state. You worked six years, and then you got to start over. And that was important because God didn't, didn't want you necessarily to work and keep everything for yourself. He wanted you to be generous, but he didn't want somebody else to take the work of your hands. He wanted whatever you give away for you to give it away. He wanted you to be a steward, right? And so he wanted to reset stewardship because you can't—he didn't want humans that weren't free. He didn't want people who worked, enjoyed the fruit of their hands, right? 
but then that had it taken from them and then had no ability to be virtuous or truthful and they weren't free. He, that's, that wasn't the kind of person he was trying to make. Slavery does something to people. It destroys their virtue. It hurts them. It distorts their humanity. It does terrible things to people. And he didn't want people to be under that. He wanted them to be freed from it. And he wanted them to, to grow up into their full humanity, which meant being a productive person and taking care of their own destiny and to have wealth that they could give to others and to build per, the personal virtues of, of not just basic morality, but of what needs to happen for their life to work well. Right? And he wanted people to be able to marry and form families. And you can't do that if you're a slave. Not, not the way you're supposed to be able to. Right? But— there are a bunch of ways also in the New Testament where it explicitly says Jesus, part of what Jesus does in his death and resurrection is not just your atonement, but it's also the free, your freedom from slavery. It's your liberation, right? Because a lot of us are under not just six years, but multiple decades of slavery of all kinds of things. Different compulsions, different habits, different, all kinds of different things, and sometimes from the outside too. And in the gospel, Christ declares you free of those things, right? John Wesley said it this way, that in Christ— Sin remains, but it doesn't reign. Right? So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it may be true that without Christ, um, laziness was like a master to you because of the long feedback loop of you just getting along without actually being a productive person. It may be that pornography was. It may be that adultery was. It may be that gossip is. There may be a thousand things that you compulsively are enslaved to, and, but in Christ, God has given you everything you need for life and godliness. You cannot believe in Jesus and simultaneously believe that you are incurably enslaved. Do you understand? You can't—those two views are not compatible. And so Jesus has declared in his death and resurrection— your freedom from the slavery of sin, your freedom from the slavery of compulsion, and your freedom from many of the things that are cyclically feeding off of each other to continually destroy you. Even stuff related to stuff like your health. You're, you do not have to do those things, and God doesn't want you to do them. God wants you to grow into the strength of freedom. Listen, one of the things that's, that's terrifying about freedom in all its forms is that it, it takes strength. Like, it's a competence to be free. Because nobody's taking care of you. You have to do this stuff. And that's true of human life. That's true of godliness. Like, God doesn't want you to think of your dependence on him like a little baby, depending on him as the big daddy. I can't tell you how many Christians come from spiritual traditions that are like, well, you know, I just, I just rely on Jesus. I'm just relying on Jesus. That's not what the Bible says. Right? In Galatians 3, it says this. Under the law, you were like an infant. And the law was like your nanny. And it like told you what to do and told you when you could do it. And you didn't get to do stuff with the inheritance. You didn't get to drive the car. You didn't get to make the investments. You didn't get to make the decisions. That wasn't for you to do. You weren't mature enough for it, right? But he said, but in Christ, the tutor of the law is taken away. That's the implication. And then he says, it was for freedom that Christ has set you free. You're not, Romans, or Galatians chapter 4, you're no longer the son of the slave woman, but the son of the free woman, the heavenly Jerusalem. 
You are, in a, you are a child. You are dependent. You are an adult. It was for freedom that Christ set you free. You are supposed to do it. And you will find, if you trust in Christ, if you tap into the joy of the Lord, if you believe what he's told you, if you seek to make every effort to add sequentially the virtues of the gospel, you will find that the strength within you is sufficient to the task in front of you. But you have to do it. That's what it means to rely on God. It means to rely that God is telling the truth that what he has put in front of you, you have sufficient strength for. By all the ways you receive strength from God, whether it's in creation as the creature that you are, whether it's the infusion of a spirit, whether it's the emotional strength of the joy of the Lord, there's many ways in which your strength comes together. And much of it is entirely dependent on grace, but it is strength that you must execute to good ends as a free man or woman. That's what it means to depend on Jesus. But if we do, he is the resetter of our slaveries. He will reset you out of that. Relational dynamic, eating dynamic, sin dynamic, gossiping dynamic, adultery dynamic. He can reset you out of that dynamic. And he will. He will. It's called sanctification. Transformation. He'll, he, he'll do it, but you have to make every effort to add, right? And then the last thing is this, is what the Bible calls jubilee. Um, you know, if you were one of these people who were kind of a failure and you like, you know, you sold your land and you ended up selling yourself into slavery and you didn't have anything and you worked your six years and then you got free, the trumpet blew on the day of atonement and you were free, what are you free to go back to? Right? What do, you, what do you have to go back to? You sold your land before you sold you, right? Isn't that what you would do? That's what I would do. So what happens? Like, where's your place? Where do you live? Where do you go? Right? One of the most fundamental realities of every human being is to have a sense of security, a sense of safety. Right? If we don't have security and safety, almost everything else falls apart. There's a lot of I mean, this is why you see that billboards like, you know, like, I wish I could read, but what I need, where I need is a place to sleep, right? Those like, like social program kind of billboards that kind of, you know, make you, like, but there, there's a lot of truth to the idea that like, if you don't feel secure, if you don't feel safe, it's hard to do anything else as a human being, right? And the thing is, is that God knows that. That's part of God's creation in you, and that's part of God's intention of joy for us. So in, um, we don't, we don't talk a lot in, in our church about—I don't use the word disenfranchisement a lot because I think it's a word that gets kind of thrown around on this stuff sometimes and people don't even know what they mean by it. But it, what it means is, is that the space of living is a space that you either find yourself excluded from or don't find yourself at home in, right? There's a space in which people live, and it's, it can be a family, it can be a society, it can be an st economic structure, it can be all kinds of things. And disenfranchisement means like you, you're just on the outside of it. You're not on the inside of it. You don't get the benefits of it, right? And, and if you come out of slavery, you don't have a home, you don't have anything, like what's supposed to happen to you, right? And so God declared that every 50 years, ownership of land would reset, right? There's, there's two things that you could not own in ancient Israel, and really only two things. Well, I'm probably besides the temple, but in normal human life, there's only two, two things you couldn't own. 
One is you couldn't own another Israelite. You'd be like, why isn't it any, you can't own a person? Well, because the logic of why you couldn't own an Israelite is because the Israelites were God's people, and he had bought them, and they were his servants. And everybody could only really be owned by one person, and all of the Israelites are owned by God, and therefore you couldn't own one. And the second is land. You actually couldn't really own land, right? He says, the land is mine. And therefore, when you sell, buy and sell land, you're not really buying and selling the land. You're buying and selling a number of crops on the land. And that number of crops is in intervals of 50. Because every 50 years, everybody loses their claim on the land, and it goes back to the original clan ownership. And then the clans give everybody a family place, and they divide it up by the number of people. So every 50 years, no matter what, you get a home. Every 50 years. There's a place for you to find as a home. It's yours. And it's your job to keep it, but you get it, right? And in addition to that, because the cost of land was tied to the number of years of the Jubilee, what it meant was is that land wasn't constantly appreciating out of your ability to buy it if you were poor. Because Land was only worth the number of crops left on it. It wasn't worth what it was like worth for you to own it for generations. And so every year, the land would go down in price one-fiftieth of the 50-year total. And so if you were a hired worker, you'd gotten your freedom, and you were prospering as a hired worker. You were saving your money. You're staying with a family member, right? You're acquiring a little bit more wealth, and the cost of the land of yours that you want to buy back is coming down. And so for a lot of people, they didn't have to wait till the year of Jubilee to buy their land back. And the Bible actually says, you'd be like, well, probably the rich people didn't sell them the land back. Except for the Bible made a law. There was a law that said you had to sell it back. You had to sell it back to them. At any point, if they could go and redeem their family land, you had to sell it to them. And you had to sell it them at the fair price, the, the amount of land divided by the number of crops left on it for the 50 years until the year of Jubilee. Now, here's the problem with this. The Jews never celebrated the year of Jubilee. Nor the seven years, seven-year Sabbaths. Until the exile. When God got fed up with them with all the idolatry and the child sacrifice and the doing whatever they wanted and thinking he would be okay with that, he sent them in exile in Babylon for 70 years. Three generations. And it says in the notations of Alexander the Great's court and in that of Julius Caesar, that in those years, that in the seventh year, the taxes for Israel were remitted because people didn't farm in Israel those years. Now think about that. See, a after they came back from the exile, there's a couple of things that never happened in Israel again. They actually, uh, there was an actual human group of people that learned a lesson. Can you imagine? That lasted for a few hundred years. And it was, one, we're never going to be idolaters again, ever. And that really was—the the, the exile really cured the Jewish people of idolatry. Maybe until today. I don't even—I mean, like a long—hundreds of years. And then secondly, they started obeying some of the laws. They started not farming on the seventh year, and it turned out they were fine. They started doing the things God said were these resets that were necessary for healthy life, and they had a healthy life. It was amazing, right? And you see, in Christ, God is interested in every person having a home, having a space, 
a space in which they don't feel insecure, a space in which they're not afraid, a space in which they're not anxious. And that, that isn't always literally spatial or land. Like, everybody needs a family. They need people they can depend on. They need people who actually love them. They need people who they don't have to think about whether or not they're doing enough in the relationship to get the payback, that, they, that it's not transactional, that it's, it's based on mutual affection. It's based on something much deeper and much bigger than they are, right? Which for biological families is just biology. Like you have your own child, and it like it does something. You have a certain kind of affection for your kid that you don't have for other kids. And it's, you're not broken. That's perfectly natural, right? And you see, in, in churches like the tradition that this church came out of, the Baptist tradition, people used to call each other brother and sister at church. They would say, hey brother, how are you? Hey sister, how are you? Right? Because in Christ, God becomes your father in the most direct and absolute eternal sense. And he makes a family out of all who believe, of people who are your brother and sister. If you belong to Jesus, you are my brother or my sister, whether I like you or not, whether you like me or not. And in the space that we have together relationally, you shouldn't have to be afraid, and you shouldn't be disenfranchised. It's one, it's one of the reasons why we struggle with things like being an international church and a multi-ethnic church, because nobody who wants to be part of our family should feel like they're not part of our family, if they're Christ's. Because Christ is the deeper thing that makes us one. And God wants everybody to have a space. He wants everybody to have a home. He wants everybody to have a place where they're not anxious and fearful and insecure. And on the outside, he wants everybody to have one of those places. It's fundamental to human existence. And, and we lose them all the time. Families split all the time. Kids are orphaned all the time. Relationships are broken over misunderstandings all the time. People are fired from jobs all the time. People lose their houses all the time. People lose things. They lose their space, the space in which they feel safe all the time. And God wants to create in our relationship with him, with Christ himself, and in the people of his church, a primary home for anyone who will trust in Christ, in which they are not afraid, they are not anxious, they are not insecure in which they are part of whatever this franchise is, they are a part of it, and they feel a part of it. And that a people who have a home like that will care about people who don't have a home. They will care about whether people feel anxious and feel like their backs are up against the wall. And they'll care about people like the poor. And they'll, they'll care about them even if they're doing stupid things because they know that we're creatures with problems and that we need resets. And yes, we have to do something with the resets. And we need to tell people, look, you better do something with this reset. But they need resets. We all need resets. We need atonement resets. And we need failure resets. And we need, <clears throat> we need homeless resets. These are, if you don't, if you don't see how primal, how absolute the human need for these things are, you're not, you're not looking, man. We are creatures so tied up in our own knots, we can't even see straight. We're people, we're, we're people who do stuff and do stupider stuff and do stupider stuff. I just can't tell you as a pastor, I just cannot tell you how many times I sit down with people and, they, they're ha and this is what happened. They're in a situation that they didn't like and so they were tempted to take a moral shortcut and they took it. And the moral shortcut made things worse. Like they always do, right? And so they get a little desperate and they want out of the situation and so— they make another stupid decision, a little stupider and a little morally worse. 
And now things are getting really problematic, and now the problems are actually even more acute and worse, and now they're feeling kind of resentful, and they really want out of this, and there's a way out, but it's even dumber and even more wicked, and they take it. And then their life is careening towards the toilet, and so they're like, they feel really terrible about their life, but man, it's really terrible to feel like you made your life terrible. I mean, it's bad enough for your life to be terrible. It's even worse if you think you made it that way, right? And so what they do is, they make another stupid, wicked decision. They start lying to themselves that it isn't their fault. And they start looking for other people to blame because other people, of course, did stuff to them that is their fault. And so you can blame it all on them. Why not do that? And then now, now you're in a real pickle because now you're lying to yourself. You don't even know what's wicked and stupid. And so you just careen into more wicked and stupid. And it turns out it's just like, I mean, it's like you can't even wait for hell. You've got to make it now. And that's, that's just normal human behavior. And that's just Tuesday for most people. Right? And then at some point, you're kind of like, you're like, okay, what, what would have happened if like two steps into that, somebody said, okay, we need to reset this. What if you believe God was like, let's reset this. What if you believe that for your marriage, right? Right now, no matter how bad it is, what if you believed that God was a God of resets? He reset for you. The law of grace says you need to find a way to reset. And the other person is going to have to work their butt off, and you're going to work your butt off. But God is a God of reset. He resets things. What if you're a terrible worker? You haven't done squat with your life in terms of productivity, and you're not a steward, right? God is a God of resets. How does he want to reset with you? He's willing to do it. You're nowhere with godliness. You just haven't invested in becoming a substantive person. Character-wise, in terms of godliness, okay, great. Those years are past. God is a God of reset, and it's it's okay to say you failed. It's okay to say you failed. You don't, have to even, you don't have to believe that you're a failure, even if you've been a failure. You have, you have no idea what you could become. You bear the image of God himself. You are a terrifying being to hell. If I could see you the way you really are in your final state, if Christ— glorified you in himself to be what you were created originally to be, I would be tempted to worship you. I might not be able to stop myself. Do you understand? Like, God wants to reset these things. He wants to reset them. He wants to make you right with him and make you right with others. He wants to make you a steward of your life and set you free from its slaveries. He wants to give you a place where you aren't anxious and afraid and broken and disenfranchised. He wants to give you a home among his people and in his heart. And he wants to make a home for himself in you. He's so committed to this that he will make that home that you need mobile in your own heart. I mean, think about that. You need a home, and he puts the home you need inside you. Like, that's better than turtles, man. Because he promises that when you turn him, the Spirit comes to live inside of you, and he makes his home with you. And in the final day, when the city of God descends on a remade earth, the angels shout, the dwelling place or the home of God is with people, and he will be with them. You need to believe that God is a God of resets. You might, it might be hard for you to—you hear stuff about Jesus, and you're like, God, oh, Jesus resets. He probably doesn't like me. No. No, he made these festivals to shove in your face, past your indecision, your insecurity, your disbelief, 
to say he wants to reset everything that you don't think he wants to reset. He wants to do it right now. Let's pray. God, as we try to see Jesus in his real shape through the silhouette of the shadow of these festivals, we pray that you'd help us to see how absolutely and beautifully focused you are in showing us that you want to reset our lives. You want to set our, reset our community. You want to reset your church together. You want to reset our relationships with each other, within our families, in our church mists. You, you want to reset us, God. Will you please help us to believe that? And I pray right now that, that people would be turning to you in their hearts and saying, God, I want you to reset this. I need this reset. I, I need to believe and trust you that you don't want me held in slavery to this. I need to believe and trust you that this guilt that I feel, if I turn to Christ, you've really taken like a lamb out into the desert to where I can't see it. It's gone. I need to believe that you've really forgiven me. And God, I need to feel like I have a home in you. I need to feel like your jubilee is on me. God, will you please help us to cherish Christ in these things and to believe his promises because we know that it is through his very great and precious promises that you've given us the power to participate in your divine nature and escape the corruption that's in the world. Mm -hmm.